And we are now live. Robin Black, thank you for joining me, brother. I really appreciate this. Yeah, no sweat, man. Uh, it is, well, I mean, uh, people watch things at any time, so it could be Tuesday at noon, but it is uh, Friday at six here, and I just finished my day, so I, I've opened a delicious beverage to, to share with you. <laughs> Good man. Good man. Get drunk on stream. It'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually don't drink a lot anymore, and... Uh, and uh, marijuana is legal in Canada, and I don't really even smoke that. I'm very, very, very sort of clear and rest and meditation and, and yoga kind of guy. But uh, on a Friday afternoon, a cold. I mean, it's a heat wave here, too, right now. Like, it's it's hot. Uh, you're in the UK, so you use Celsius. It's in the 30s, and it's wet. So I mostly put this in the fridge <laughs> so I could do this with it. It's, it's a hot day in Toronto, for sure. Good man. Well, that, that's... Uh... You know, calories being burnt for fun, right? That's right. <laughs> body weight. That's right. Body weight and sweat just dropping off. <laughs> yeah, I could make bantamweight again. <laughs> Quality. Um, so, for those that are listening that might not know about yourself and uh, who you are and your kind of background, um, just give yourself like a little introduction. Talk for as long as you want, obviously. Um, start. Tell us your journey. You know how you got to where you are. Mm-hmm. Well, I. It's weird, actually, when when you think about where you are, because I don't think about sort of where I am as much anymore. You know, I see life as always moving. It's a river, constant change. So it's actually nice to be asked about sort of where you're at today. Um, I talk about martial arts. You know, I've spent my life obsessively studying martial arts. There were times in in my, you know, 20s and early 30s where I kind of went off that path, I still still was into martial arts, but it wasn't the primary focus of my life, but it, it is now. And uh, so I talk about them, I analyze them, I commentate them. I fought uh, as a professional MMA fighter nine times. I, I wasn't brilliant. I did win this this little belt right here, which was a Canadian bantamweight championship in a, in a small organization. But I'm very proud of it. Uh, I'm proud of you know all of the fights, the dis- you know the disastrous failures, and you have those if you're if you're going to push yourself and challenge yourself. And I'm proud of the the little successes too. And um, but yeah, I think you know the world that we live in, mid 2019 right now. You can follow your passion and your curiosity and whatever you're really into, and you can kind of make a life of it. And I, my entire life outside of my wife and my dog and a few hobbies, which are mostly around martial arts, is uh, analyzing martial arts, talking about them, doing you know breakdowns of technical and, and philosophical and, and strategic things about them, and uh, commentating, traveling the world, sitting next to a ring or a cage to commentate fighting. And, and uh, it's good, you know? Like, sometimes it's nice to pause for a second and be grateful. Uh, it's not. I'm talking to, to a friend in England that I'm just going to get to know. I'm drinking a cold beer on a Friday afternoon, and I I spend my days studying martial arts and telling people about it. I mean, I got it pretty good. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not a bad way to make a uh, a paycheck, right? <laughs> it, it really isn't. And in my case, this is what I love. But everybody loves something, you know. And to accomplish this idea of making your passion your pay your your bills and and give you uh comfort and travel and whatever you're into buying things whatever you're into this is doable but it will require 12 hours a day of work non-stop driven obsessive work so you might as well do it with something that you love you know um if some somebody loves you know 
NASA or, you know, tennis or art or, or building cabinets or whatever you can build, you can make this your life. It's not, it, it is not out of the realm of possibility. In fact, it's very in the realm of possibility. You just have to cut your costs down to as low as possible and obsessively work, take a part-time job if you need to and keep going until it's your life. And it sounds really simple. It sounds really easy and it is easy. Sorry. It sounds simple. It is simple, but it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. It's hard. It's really hard work, which is why you should probably, if you're going to work really hard 12 hours a day, it should be with something that you're passionately mad about. And that for me is martial arts and the lessons we learn from fighting. Yeah. I think that's um, one of the most, like, I think frightening things for me is that you kind of work the majority of your life on this planet. And a lot of people out there work doing something they fucking hate till you know 63 64 65 and it's like then they retire and they get some shitty yeah. ass pension and they realize they haven't necessarily achieved anything they've wanted to do and they yeah. become kind of sad and unhappy about it and i think that's for me for sure. one of my biggest uh, issues is like if i'm doing something i dislike i just i want to get away from it as soon as possible and pursue something that's going to bring me happiness because i know i've got to do it for the long run that's it I what you just, you know, the two and a half sentences you said there is the root of what we're all supposed to be doing. You know, it was the fifties, you know, it was North America in, you know, the post-war era. They were like, get a job, get a house, buy some, get a nice car, you know, be a citizen. And it was about urging people to act in a certain way to create consumerism. This wasn't built around our happiness. This was built around shaping people to behave a certain way. Um, and uh, there's absolutely no reason you should do a job you hate. Um, and somebody's answer to that will be, well, bro, I got bills. Well, get rid of them. You know, you shouldn't have an expensive truck if that is what, if doing a job you hate is what's necessary to have an expensive truck. There's no way that truck is worth more than your happiness. You know, buying a big house, you know, spending a lot of money, like sell all that shit. The life of an artist is a wonderful life. The life of an artist doing the things that you love to do. And, but these days, that life will lead you to more money anyways, more success anyways, because you're doing what you should be doing. The world doesn't need more mechanics or plumbers or teachers or any specific thing. The world needs more people doing what they're passionate about. That's what the fuck the world needs. And, and you get rewarded for it if you work hard at it. You can make $200,000 a year buying and selling Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shit. And having a, uh, having a YouTube channel about retro Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle stuff. You can. Uh, of course, you could take a job you hate to make $70,000 a year to pay for your truck and your house. But if you just instead have a part-time job that's not that important while you build these things and you only make $23,000 but don't have that shit, later you can have a really good life. It's, it's somewhat simple. It really is. Um, but it seems scary. But the thing that people need to understand is it seems scary because the other thing, this job and this mortgage and all these things, is positioned to you as if it's the stable choice. But it isn't. That's a myth. Everybody, how many people do you know getting laid off their stable job, their quote, stable jobs? It's not stable. It's no more stable than starting your Etsy store, YouTube page, et cetera, a bunch of Ninja Turtle shit that you're obsessed with. You can, it can be done. I make a really nice living now, traveling the world, 
sharing with people my passion about martial arts. Sitting, I'm going next week to Rhode Island, then I'm coming back to Toronto to work in a studio and talk about the UFC. I'm going to commentate on Fight Pass next week, come back to the studio to talk about the UFC in Toronto on TSN, and then I'm flying to Myanmar, which most people don't even know where that is. It's Burma. To talk about, to commentate a 2,000 year old martial art called Lei Wei, which some people call Let Wei, but that's the Western thing. Over time, I'm trying to learn. I, I want, I need to be able to talk about it historically and culturally appropriate, and because that matters to me. Um, and I'm going to commentate that in Burma, sitting beside a ring in a 38 degree temperature outdoor stadium talking about this 2000 year old martial art of nine limbs, elbows, knees, punches, kicks, and headbutts. That's what I'm gonna do. And uh, it took a long time. I had jobs, you know, at one time, I was a hairdresser for many years as a job that I could learn, be good at, gave me the flexibility to pursue the things I liked. Um, but now I do this and I, I, I'm actually, as I say that even now, where it's been a couple of years of being comfortable and thriving, um, doing what I love, even when I say it, I just feel tingly. Like I can't fucking believe that's my life. You know, I really can't. It's really amazing. And I'm very, very, and that's why I'm super bullish on always trying to tell people they can do it too. I'm not special. I'm some fucking guy from Manitoba, like central Canada who loved fighting and worked really hard. Like anybody can do it. Um, I'm living proof. You can, if you just obsess and work hard enough, you'll you'll probably be able to make the life you want. Technology is there today. The the tools are there. You can do it. People people are out there going, "What does this guy mean? He's not special. He's in the Illuminati, man. That's confirmed." <laughs> <laughs> Doing some of those hands. If there and shit. if there if there isn't, I got this. Actually, there's a guy. So I do work for DAZN, a really cool company. It's a digital uh, company that has yeah, a lot of people know what it is. And some people don't. They have it's like the Netflix of sports. Right. And uh, there was a guy I was working with there. And I, I do this as my sort of sign off. And it's a throwback. It's a rock sign. You know, it's like the double horns in 80s heavy metal. But basically, it's like shit rocks. I, I'm an to I'm an old rocker. That's what I do, right? And that guy was like, "Dude, I don't want you throwing those." And he was serious. Those Illuminati signs on my on my program. I'm like, "Dude, dude, like really? It's the, it's like Judas Priest rules. Like I'm an old dorky heavy metal, you know, the rock fan from Central Canada. This is what we do. It's not an Illuminati sign. But hey, man, like the world's a weird place. So, so obviously, before you became sort of a sports analyst, uh, analyst and of an MMA analyst, uh, analyst. I always struggle to say that word, pain in the ass. It is a weird one, yeah. Um, what was you doing before then? Like, kind of, what was your journey up to becoming a, mm. a sports analyst? Because I think you was doing rock and things like that. Yeah, so as a kid, I was uh, I was an obsessive martial artist. I studied Taekwondo because that's what was available. And also, as a kid in the 80s, you know, I was born in 1969. It's uh, mid-July. In less than three weeks, I'm going to turn 50. Which it. is crazy. Uh, thank you. I mean, I trained um, five times in the last three days. I, did, I was in the gym three times with a strength and conditioning coach and did kickboxing twice. Uh, so, you know, maybe that's and I'm now geared towards like repairing injuries and stuff. So maybe I got a little more time. My wife is only 33. She'll turn 33 uh, a week after me. And so we have time. I, I hope to have kids. And if I'm going to have my, a kid at 52 or something, I, it's my responsibility to be healthy and fit and, you know, eat good. And that's why, 
you know, I cut down on, on, you know, this, this delicious beverage is, is a rarity, you know, like I don't smoke marijuana, even though I, 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 and it's legal here. I feel it actually is very beneficial for a lot of people, but I just, you know, now it's a priority to be fit, but, um, but yeah, as a kid in, in the eighties, you know, martial arts then was about how high can you kick? Can you ju do jumping spin kicks? Can you do the splits? Can you kick like straight up in the air? Can you do doubles? You know, can you do Jean-Claude Van Damme? Uh, Chuck Norris wasn't the highest kicker, but we liked him anyways. Um, so the Taekwondo was perfect in, in the, um, the eighties. Then, you know, you go through, you know, parts of life is about, you're a different person all the time. We don't always realize that, but we are, you know, uh, it's an old saying, um, uh, a man can't step in the same river twice because it is not the same river and he's not the same man, right? You change constantly. You are different all the time. You, and in fact, you need to be different. It is your responsibility to be different. I feel sad for people when they see somebody and then they're mad at something they did five years ago or seven years ago or 10 years ago, because how can they not understand that they're a different person? They're, there's almost, you're, none of your cells are the same as they were when you were younger. It's your job to change, right? So anyways, through, through changing as, as, and as the path of getting older and stuff, uh, I started to, to really be into expressing myself instead of just martial arts and, and uh, with music and writing and, and singing and performing and stuff. So I, I was in a rock band for many years and it was fun. You know, it really was. It was an adventure. And t today, what I do now is heavily informed by music and art. You know, my, my view of, of martial arts is colored by fine art, painting, writing, poetry, these things, uh, which I think is different because the way that it's been sort of presented in North America since the late 90s is very much as a sport. Mm. I don't watch football and baseball and, and hockey and tennis, and I don't watch any sports. I, I love art. And I see and share martial arts as a pure art form. Um, and I think that's different. And, you know, over time, at some times it made people really dislike my work. And at other, and lately it seemed to just, you know, maybe because I've softened it or I've learned more or I've improved certain things. Now they seem to, to like it. Uh, it seems to be, you know, 80% appreciated and then 20%, you know, disliked. So, uh, Maybe that's a good thing, but yes. So I, I, you know, I meandered off into into uh, music for some time, and then um, later came back, changed my life, and started fighting. But, but fighting for me really was, I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to analyze it. I, all I did was talk about fighting. When people when people would put fighting on TV. Uh, it was only Joe Rogan and Mike Goldberg. And, but in my room, it was me yelling shit. Uh, it's just, I feel compelled to talk about what I see. I feel compelled to explain it. I see something and I go, oh my God, that's so amazing. And I need my friends to all understand. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted, uh, it's incredible to say, I feel so thankful to say it, but I wanted to do exactly what I'm doing now. But I knew I was a guy who wore eye makeup and leather pants and I had blue hair sticking out everywhere. And I played like an arrogant rock star character that, you know, uh, that was sort of some at least somewhat comedically misogynistic um, uh, in a sort of an 80s sort of um, uh, what would you call it? Like, uh, you know, uh, a 
an ironic version of, it, of an 80s rock star. So, um, and, uh, you know, D-list rock star in Canada at best. Although we did tour Europe and, and the UK a fair bit, lots of times. Uh, you and I were chatting earlier about about uh, the towns I've been to in, in England. But yeah, so I, I meandered off then, but to want to be able to commentate and analyze fighting, and, and I believed that I had something to offer, but I knew without a shadow of a doubt that there's nobody you know, the, the people, the real true stakeholders who had earned ownership of parts of this world were not going to accept me. And so I figured I would have to explore fighting and understand it more deeply than most people who did what I do. And I lost my first fight. So I fought again. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll fight. I'll experience winning. And I lost again. And then I won. And then I was like, well, you know, if I win again, it'll be 50-50. And then there was a, a belt was up. And like all of a sudden I fought nine times and I learned about it and a much more deeply connected what the essence of it was, what the experience of it was, you know, the fears and anxieties and the truth of it. You know, I, I, I hate to I don't want to be judgmental, but you cannot analyze martial arts without without fighting you cannot you can oh sorry you can but you're not speaking the truth because 90 percent of the truth is only available through the experience mm. the truth lies in the experience it's happening in your body and your mind it is not seen from the third person so when we try to analyze fights without connecting to some of those truths those physical and emotional and and anxiety and, and physiological truths, we only say what we see and what we see is maybe five or 10% of it. So I couldn't, now I understand that I, because I've been both. I've been a guy who didn't fight, who tried to explain what was happening. And now I'm a guy who did fight and I can compare that. And yeah. so, but yeah, it's been a long meandering road. I'm, I'm babbling, um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's good. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm like, I'm a very, very, very grateful human being. So what was your, um, like, how did you manage your uh, emotional states when you were fighting? Because obviously you get the nervousness and the anxiety and the, oh shit, I'm going out there to do this. How did you kind of manage that? Because you see UFC pros today, they'll step into the octagon and some of them look so calm and collective and relaxed. Yeah. And then you do get the ones that prowl around yeah. the ring. They're trying yeah. to, you know, yeah. keep themselves calm. Yeah. And also you do get the ones that kind of look like maybe yeah. they're having a bit of stage fright. Yeah, but still perform. Well, it's a, it's a, um, it is a spectrum. It's a, it's a, a, a long. There's a lot of gray in there. There is almost no black and white. Uh, I guess the black or white, whichever you know, the zero or the one would be. I panicked. I cannot get in the cage. That would be the extreme. That would be total. You know, could not do it at all. And I have seen that. We don't see it too often, um, but we, I have seen it, you know, in the thousands of fights that I've commentated and been at and stuff, you, you see it occasionally. And the other extreme would be perfection. Uh, but even that one, the guys who seem the most comfortable, when you, when you know what to ask them and they trust you as one of them, as somebody who fights, they will, you know, and you'll be like, dude, you were nervous. Eh? And they'll be like, oh, fuck, it was terrifying. <laughs> Like, that's what Jorge Masvidal, <laughs> after, you know, 40 street fights and 50 professional fights, will tell you. He's like, man. But the difference is the – so fear and anxiety and the physiological 
um, sort of indicators of those things, the experience of it, you know, a very common one. If you ever are driving and then something happens and you realize in that moment, like your body reacts to it, you feel a tingling often in the outside of your forearm. That's a common one, your arms for some reason, but there are physiological ones. So what all that is, you know, heart rates up, you have to pee a hundred times. They, they all do it at the highest level, you know, you know, uh, Robbie Lawler still is peeing 17 times. He's still having that experience. He may know how to manage it or he may, the, one of the biggest strengths that the great ones have is they, first of all, they just accept it's real and that it's logical, mm. it's rational. Fear and anxiety and, and that tingling, that nervousness, that, that rise in cortisol, all of these things that are happening within your body, the, the, the tingling, the, the experience of the mind, all of it, these are rational reactions to an irrational action. So f walking in your underpants in front of 16,000 people into a cage that's lit while cameras broadcast you to fight a professional athlete in front of, you know, 300,000 people on pay-per-view, that is irrational, <laughs> right? That doesn't make any sense. Fucking crazy. Like, it's fucking crazy is what it is, right? <laughs> so you, you should have those reactions. So the greats have them. And the very first thing that helps them is knowing it's normal. And so that's the powerful thing. Some people, you know, either just find their way through it better or through just, there's a certain amount of genetics, but a lot of it, most of it is preparation. And then some of it is experience. And when guys, young men and women who fought a lot growing up or were in extreme sports or, you know, had these like really psychologically, like chemically aroused aspects of fear and anxiety, they actually, it feels more familiar. I'll tell you for sure, and he wouldn't be mad at me saying this, I wouldn't expect, well, I don't know, maybe he would. Uh, Nate Diaz is fucking scared when he fights. Jorge Masvidal, like the, 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 the meanest, baddest of the bad have that. But they've also done it so many times that they still have the fear, but they walk towards it. And this is a cliche, but all of the greatest things in life are on the other side of fear. And you asked about me. My first fight, I wasn't scared enough, but that's very common. The worst fight, now I also took a lot of punishment in my first fight, a lot. Uh, my nose was broken, I had a cut on my eyeball, I had paralysis in the side of my face for like four months. From the top of my tooth, bisected down my nose, halfway through my eye in, a, in like a panel for months. Uh, and a lot of abuse, took a lot of abuse. And the second fight was way harder because I knew what was in store. I knew what was there, right? Like it wasn't a mystery. Your first fight, no matter who you are, somewhere in your mind, you are telling yourself, I'm gonna walk out. I'm gonna look great. I'm gonna feel amazing. The crowd's gonna love me. I'm gonna do a jumping spin kick. I'm gonna knock this guy out. And then the ring car girl's gonna jump, jump up on stage and whisper into my ear that she wants to give me a blowjob out. <laughs> That's how it's gonna go. And then they're gonna offer me a title shot and fucking Dana White's gonna call. Like, in the back of your mind in your first fight, it is very common to try to tell yourself that story. 
you know, give or take, right? Like, you know, maybe the rain card girl didn't, didn't offer you to pollate you. Or like maybe Dana's not calling, but on some level, it's something. But nobody thinks that in their second fight. Although if, I guess if the first one went really well, maybe you would. But my friend um, Mike Kimball, for example, he knocked this guy out in like, you know, a minute. In the second fight, he knocked him out in five seconds. So his third fight, I'm pretty sure he, he was probably p thinking that might happen. My first fight, I took a lot of abuse for seven minutes. And uh, so my second fight, I was terrified. And I actually had, you know, I, I am, it's great that I had this experience because I understand it. And, you know, I, um, I was not a good game day guy until the very end. Until the very, very end. My last fight, I was a, I was an excellent game day guy. Uh, and there were one or two others in the middle. But for the most part, the, uh, the experience of it made, made me realize the things you do in the gym you cannot do in a fight. Uh, and that's, there's many reasons. It's physiological. It's, it's anxious. It's the, con way, the weight of the consequences. But it's also something called the spotlight effect. When people are watching, it's hard to do things. Mm. That's true of all of us. So, so it was hard. It was very difficult, but I'm glad I did it because by understanding that, and, and, you know, I don't, I, again, I don't want to judge or, or project, you know, something negative on anybody, but, but, uh, we often, you know, whether we're fans or, or people who, you know, do talk about fighting in some other capacity uh, without the experience, they'll often judge the fighter. This guy fucked that thing up. What was he thinking? That's when you hear a lot. What, uh, what was Chris Weidman thinking when this, you know, and it's like, if you fought, you would never do that. And not because you wouldn't want to be a dick. You wouldn't do it because you'd understand, you'd know nobody watching on the couch could pot of course they don't understand what they're thinking because they don't understand what they're feeling they don't understand what the emotion is they don't understand the reality they don't understand the you know the consequences they don't understand the process they don't understand any of it so you hear that often people will be like you know i don't know what he's doing like why isn't he passing the guard i don't understand why he's not <laughs> passing the guard well my the the simple and gentle answer to that is of course you don't yeah how could you? How could you? Right. Um, whereas somebody with many fights will say he's taking a rest or he's feeling anxiety or he's just happy to have a moment or his heart rate is going through the, the thing or his brain isn't working right now or he can't like you are. We are in combat. Everything we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. talking thinking feeling reminiscing analyzing in regular time. None of that exists. Uh, the brain, this, this is the simplest way to, explain, to put it. The brain will perform the way it's been programmed to perform if the artist is in an optimum state of focus and arousal. So if we just take those things, so when we work backwards, focus and arousal, meaning you're able to actually focus on the task despite all of the lights and sounds and pressures and people and all of those things, the hard work of being able to actually compartmentalize the task, if you can do that, and arousal, people will make fun of that at times. They're like, oh, I'm not arousing. It's a psychological, it's a term of psychological, you know, up or down. And you, if you can regulate, if you're too calm, you can't perform or like you're too hesitant or if you're too wound up you're going to run in and get kneed in the head and be unconscious or any <laughs> other number of things normal reaction very common there's a human reaction so if you're those things then what everything you will do in that fight is a is a interpretation your brain's interpretation with the data that it has of what to do based on how it's been prepared 
Nobody's thinking. Nobody's like, okay, I see he's throwing a lot of leg kicks. If he throws another leg kick, I'm going to hit him. You talk to young, uh, high-performing athletes, and you show them after, they're like, oh, shit, yeah. You know what? I, I kind of could feel that he was leaning that way, but none of it was conscious. They'll see it after, and they'll recognize it. It's something that I call it. I don't know if this is an accurate term. It's my, it's a, I've never heard it specifically, but it probably exists if we Google it in some other paradigm. I call it algorithmic thinking. You're not thinking, your brain starts running sorting algorithms, bubble sort and other types of sorting algorithms that exist to catalog the threats and then use that information to spit out an action. None of which you are in control of, you're almost watching it happen. Um, once you know that, then we, in, uh, then we start to feel silly discussing it from the third person. We're like, well, this guy's all about volume. And you know, if he gets a lot of punches on this guy, but if he can close the distance, all of that is very, very um, uh, spectator-based observations. It's not rooted in truth. Um, it's not rooted in, in the experience. So, but, uh, you know, all this stuff is very, very nerdy. It's truth. My job, as I see it now, is to slowly bring a little more and more of the real truth of what's happening uh, without judgment. I'm, I'm not mad or I'm not sad or I don't have any personal attachment to the fact that we are currently describing something improperly and that's not anybody's fault. It's just what we're doing. We're humans. We see something. We try to explain it. We explain it. The problem with our explanation is we have 5 or 10% of the information. So we're explaining it as if that 5 or 10% of the information is 100% of the information, <laughs> right? So my job, as I see it, because I get to do this, you know, I've, I've created a scenario in which I get to do this my way. Uh, and what makes me happy um, is over the next 10 or 20 or 25 years, as long as I'm healthy and able to do it, is to slowly be able to say, actually, this is sort of what's happening and, and, and here's why, and here's what that feels like. And, and, and not, a, it won't be natural. A lot of people prefer things to be just how they are, even if, whether it's right or wrong or whether it's limited or, or perfect or imperfect, they don't necessarily care a lot. There's a certain amount of people who just don't want change. And so that's a challenge. Um, but it's okay. Like, you know, shit again, like, I get to do what I love all day. So, you know, the, these challenges are not, they're not super stressful. They're just, they're just factual. They're just mm. what it is. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, with, within sort of combat sports and any sport is you'll see a lot of top performers excel when dealing with those emotional states. They still have them and they're very, they understand them, they accept them and then it helps them excel rather than kind of, either trying uh -huh. not to acknowledge them and just going in there kind mm. of like a robot and then before they know it they're KO'd on the floor because they haven't had that kind of fight or flight experience you know what I mean that that fight yeah and used it in a positive way I mean you see people like Conor McGregor look cool as a cucumber when they go in the uh, the octagon mm -hmm. and they look composed yeah. all the time yeah and you think how can you be but so composed that guy is lit yeah. He is burning inside, but he appears it. Yeah. So what you're saying, I believe to be true with as much knowledge as we have so far. Um, I think everything you said is, is not only accurate, but I think we can extrapolate it into life. Mm -hmm. And that is if we put everything on the table 
and deal with reality. This is all the information we know, and this is what it means. This is what we can do about it, and this is what we can't do about it. You all, it, it sort of disarms a lot of it. So if you go, I'm going to be scared. It's going to be heavy. Everybody's going to be looking. Uh, you know, I won't be able to feel my fingers in those moments. Once you acknowledge this will happen, you and you know, if I lose, it may mean this to certain people. What does that actually mean to my life? What does that mean to me? How do I, you know, you acknowledge it all. You lay it on the table. You can deal with it. Mm. What you don't do, and that is Connor or anybody else fighting or life. I, you know, whether it's a job or a relationship or, you know, your business or whatever. If you lay it all on the table and you look at it honestly, and it's difficult to do this, um, you, you've, what we have to train ourselves to do is not judge things, just see things, not judge them. It's like, this means this. No, it doesn't mean anything. It is this. This is this. Look at what is. Not, not applying meaning to it. Not applying judgment or opinion to it. Just what is. It's scary. It's hard. It's heavy. I could lose. I could be embarrassed. Uh, people could mock me. What does all that mean to me? Acknowledge it. Get ready with it. And then, and then accept it. Mm. And do it anyways. The opposite is put it all in a little box press it all, close it all up and put it away. It's like, oh no, there's no chance I'm going to lose. I fucking got this guy. I'm way better than this guy. I could not lose. I'm, I'm here to win. Like once you start doing that, you are, it's impossible that I lose. I just, the, he could never break me. Once you start doing that, you've acknowledged nothing. Yeah. Of course he could break. What if, what if he's stronger than you thought? What if he's better? What if you break your leg? What if you break your neck? You know, what if, you know, as somebody parachutes into the ring, that sounds like a joke, but that actually happened. Mm. Google man parachutes into boxing ring. It really fucking happened. Yeah. Have you, ever, have you ever seen yeah, that? Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. 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 When you say that, it sounds like a joke. That really happened. Like if that happened, fucking anything can happen. So acknowledge all the things out of your control, accept them and do it anyways. And that is the truth of everything. It's like, you know, you can't. And so many things come with that. It's like, what if I lose? Okay, you will lose. And then what? Well, you know, uh, Eddie Alvarez lost to Conor McGregor. Eddie realized that days and weeks later, his wife loved him. His kids loved him. His family loved him. He had his health. He was still a former champion. He still had all the adventures of his life. He still had, he still had everything. And the opinions of the people who are spectators in life over time have to not matter to you. They have to. This is something that must be accomplished if you're going to do anything in your life. Once you remove that one, that removes a big one. It's like, yeah, people are going to fucking make fun of McNugget. So what? Hmm. Who are these people? You must weigh it. You know, I pity people who are mad or express negative opinions all the time. It must be incredibly painful because what's happening generally well-adjusted, happy people don't spend very much time talking about how much Conor McGregor sucks or even politics or any of these things. So, you know, they, they spend time doing things that give them joy or the learning or experience or change or knowledge or fun or a break, all these things. Well-adjusted people spend almost no time hating fucking Conor or Habib or fucking Brendan Schaub or whoever. <laughs> like, so what, why would anyone do that? 
generally, they see the world as a very unfair and unforgiving place. They think that, you know, they, they're trying to make sense of the world around them and they see stress and fear and anxiety. And then they see Conor McGregor and what they could see is he was just some guy from a small town in Ireland who just, through a, a perspective and hard work, created a life for himself. Instead, they see that guy had all the advantages and I have none. Fuck him. He sucks. I feel I feel pain for those people. And you what you cannot do if you're going to try to accomplish anything in your life is you can give you must give them no power. There's only two possible two true possible things. Um let's say somebody hates your podcast. Somebody fucking Robin Black sucks. Whatever, <laughs> right? Let's say let's say somebody there's one of two things that happened. So I made 900 breakdowns in the last 3 years. To truly know I suck to really, with any type of information, to, to, to be knowledgeable enough to do it, one would have to think you'd have to consume 20% of my work, right? So that would be what? 180 breakdowns. So one, if you say Robin Black sucked and you didn't consume 180 breakdowns, and of course you didn't, you think he sucks, then you don't know anything about his work, yeah. right? If somebody says your podcast sucks, um, and you know, you've made 30 of them, they better have seen seven. And they didn't see seven because they made a decision that you suck. So they say you suck, but they actually don't know what you do. They have yeah. no information about actually what you do. So that, that, that opinion has no relevance. Uh, it should have no relevance anyways because you don't know who they are or what they know. The other thing is maybe they did watch 180 breakdowns or 30 of your things. If they did, there's no fucking way they actually hate it. No normal human being would watch 180 of something if they hated it. They watch it. They hate it for some internal reason of their own. Um, and if people just, you know, and that's, you just can't. Like, it just, your life is too valuable. Your time is too valuable, you know. Your, your dreams are too valuable to have somebody who just is too scared to chase theirs affect you, you know. Yeah. And, and so as a result... The Connors of McGregor's of the world, or or the John, although some of them you do see them effective, you know you do like, you know John Jones sometimes gets mad that people don't like him. They're like some of them do, but it's over time that you get rid of that. Your life is too valuable to have somebody else's pain about how their you know the un the unfairness of their life affect you. You just can't do it, you know. So you remove that, and all of a sudden. The f one of the fears of losing to Anthony Pettis or losing to Jose Aldo, you know. But on the other hand, some of the guys who lost to Connor, um, Poirier early changed. He's a very different guy than he was. We all are different than we were. Jose uh, and uh, uh, a lot of them, when they lost, part of the, the what made them tense up was the added pressure of losing to this fucking asshole. Yeah. Like, all of my people will be so mad if I lose to this asshole. I need to destroy him. I need to kill him. That's part of what he tries to create in you, right? He's trying to create the consequences of success and failure having so much weight that you don't perform normally. Um, but what, and for him, you know, there'll be times, I'm sure he drinks too much whiskey these days, who knows, you know, but there'll be times that he will respond negatively to people. But uh, m much of the time, 
you know, the truth is the wolf can't care what the sheep think. Um, yeah. And much of the world, and it's our job. If you care, it's your job to every now and again, see if you can edge people towards positivity. I believe that's important. Um, but, you know, just you, you're this, the judgment of the people who are in the stands, whether you win or lose a fight, has to have no bearing on you. And you have to extrapolate that into your podcast. You have to extrapolate that into whatever it is you do because you know, your, your life is so thrilling to pursue the things you pursue. You certainly can't be discouraged by somebody who's mad at life, you know? Yeah. So I think, yeah. um, I think with, uh, the only person that I don't think felt the weight of, uh, the situations with Connor were Nate, even though, cause he won the first fight, lost the second. Yeah. And obviously Khabib just went in there yeah. and, and yeah. did his thing. And I think those yeah. are the only two people yeah. that it hasn't necessarily yeah. like, affected and had this way yeah. on. Because Nate just seems like the same so, person. Yeah, yeah, I know. Nate, Nate fucking Diaz is an incredible, incredible, incredible combat human. Uh, and his brother too. Um, I'll, I'll throw my thought on that in a second. But I think Khabib was affected. But I think it lit him even fiercer. <laughs> That's the, that is the that is the risk you take when you're gonna fire them up and fire them up and fire them up and hope that they get so lit it makes them you know it makes them uh, create make some error. You're hoping for them to have some type of strategic error, and Habib did, and that is jump over the fence and get fined lots of money. Yeah. But that was after he fucking murdered that guy. So, so he, he did what he wanted to Habib and he did get a reaction. And this goes back to, you know, one of the, like a simple cliche, be careful what you wish for. He got exactly what he wanted out of Habib. Uh, just not in the way that he wanted. He made him mad. He made him passionate and angry and driven and lit by rage. and <laughs> The desire to murder him. Uh, but Habib's so good. It actually not only didn't make it harder for him, also, bear in mind, this is this is something real. There's a push and a pull here. The bigger Connor gets and the more you shrink, the bigger he gets and the more you shrink. And the more you shrink, the and it all feeds off each other. It's a dynamic. You know, a, a hundred years in the future, we may understand some of the relationship between the minds. Mm -hmm. there, there may be things we don't see, but there is a dynamic that we don't have the verbiage to explain, but over time you, you see its reality. And, you know, anybody who has seen thousands of boxing matches or wrestling matches or combat of any sort, or even large scale team sports, you see that, that as somebody, you know, uh, there was a game, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs years ago, and I don't watch other sports, but they were in some game seven of something in a, in a playoff and they were up like four, one, and when it became 4-2, I suddenly could feel they're going to lose this game 5-4. And it was in the last two minutes. And it happened because you just feel that as the confidence goes and they start to shrink and they start to panic and they start to grow. And it's real. You've seen it a hundred times. And when Connor can't make you shrink, he doesn't perform as well either. Mm. It, it, he, you, you reverse break him through your mental strength. And I don't say that lightly and I don't say that with judgment or insult. I just, it's, you know, just from an analytical, imperfectly verb, um, spoken analytical thing. When Nate wouldn't fold, Connor couldn't be his best. Although, you know, he 
fucking looked pretty good in the first couple of rounds. When Khabib wouldn't, you know, wouldn't either shrink or overextend or do the things that Connor's trying to get, Connor didn't continue to, to grow in confidence either. Those things are all connected. They're all connected. Um, we're all connected. People are connected, you know. Be nice to a cab driver. He'll be nice to the next person who will go out into the world and be nice to somebody. I mean, yeah. these are all, this is just what it is to be human. And in, and in a fight, it's just two humans. I mean, um, the one case it did work was with, I guess, Jose Aldo. You know, he like was pissing yeah. him off so much doing, yeah. doing all these things, saying all these things, and then lit that fire in his belly and Jose Aldo went out there with pure rage and just ran towards him yeah. and got, got starched, you know, and it was yeah. done. It was, it was also, that was all new, like pushing it to that limit, seeming irrational, behaving what seemed, nobody acts this way. What's he saying about Brazil? What's he saying about my family? Why is he touching me? All of this stuff was so bizarre and unexpected. It had, it, it, everything works better the first time. Everything, everything works better. And over time, the more familiar, we all sit around and people are analyzing it and coaches are discussing it. And, and, and when something is that incredible, Every fight team in the world that night is sitting around together, uh, having drinks. I was in Vegas when he starts Aldo, and everybody around, what happened? Why did it happen? What does it mean? Then what? Then, and everybody starts thinking about it. And as soon as they do, some of them are going to be way off on a tangent, completely incorrect, not understand what's happening, uh, project all kinds of shit based on stuff they don't understand. Others are going to start reading books and, and reading about the mind and reading about, you know, um, uh, trying deception and reading about manipulation and reading about fucking, I, you know, if you go and you read about lion taming, lion taming doesn't feel like there's a big connection to what, what Conor McGregor did until you see certain hand gestures, certain behaviors. This is shit that people use in other areas other than fighting. I mean, Bruce Lee brought fencing in to fighting. Conor McGregor brought posture and physicality and mental manipulation. Yes, it had all been done before, but not in the way he did it. You know, at, but after it's brought in there, the world is shit. You talk to Dean Thomas or Mike Brown or Duke Rufus or fucking Mike Perry or like any of these fighters or coaches, all they want to, something new happens, they got to figure it out immediately. They might not figure it out immediately, but the act of starting to try opens up understanding right across the, the organism of, of fighting itself. And, and so eventually, whatever you're doing, unless it continues to change, uh, as people understand it, eventually gets exposed. Uh, exposed is the wrong word because people, people project that as some negative thing that somehow it was flawed. When it works, it wasn't flawed. It's, you know, um, like I'm trying to think. Rhonda didn't become exposed. Rhonda was fucking brilliant in the paradigm as it was understood at the time with all the, the moving parts. And then when that thing changed, she no longer was, was dominant. She was not exposed. And somebody would say, yeah, she was exposed. Her striking sucked. Her striking was irrelevant. Mm. There was no, nothing to expose. Like if you have a weakness and that weakness or, you know, some flaw or some ability, some opening or something later, but that thing is never exists. It's not an exposure. It didn't matter. It was irrelevant. Rhonda would throw a few punches. She'd close the distance. She'd fucking get a hold of you. She'd whip you to the ground. She'd fucking beat you up or submit you or whatever. Didn't matter. There wasn't, 
you know, the, the hole or the weakness is something that we try to suggest somehow undermines her greatness in those moments. It, it doesn't. It, it yeah. can't. We can want it to if we don't like her for some reason or, you know, we prefer to see people not be great. We can try to there, – there are undertones often of people that they're, what they're – if they don't feel that they can be great, they don't – you know, it's rooted in, in a very simple principle. The, the, the fixed mindset says, I am this and that's all I'll ever be. And the growth mindset says, wherever I work, I'll get better. Those two things are so fundamentally different that everything about your life changes based on what you are. If you have a, a fixed mindset, you're like, I'm poor, I'm dumb, uh, this is unfair, I'm, you know, I'm whatever you think you are, and you're that forever, you can hate people and hope to find them to fail because it's unfair that they're successful. If you have a growth mindset, you look at somebody and go, what if I worked really hard on, on fighting? What if I worked really hard on playing piano? What if I worked really hard on, on learning to you know, edit something? Or what if I went to university? What if I lost weight? And like a growth mindset says, wherever I apply effort, I will improve. And if you have that, you see great people and you aspire to be like them. If you do not have that, you see great people and you, and you hope for them to collapse or fail or you hope to find ways to explain that they're not actually that great. Um, and it's really rooted in that. It's really rooted in that, in that the perception of, of your own world and the people around you and the people that you see on television and the people you see you know, on the street is rooted in your belief as to whether or not you can be more than you are tomorrow by, by, by working on that. It's, and it's, it is one of the biggest anchors to a happy life or a miserable life is, do you believe that you can improve yourself with, with work? And, um, uh, do you believe you're capable of that work? And if the answer is yes, you're not afraid of anything. Your life will always be getting better. You know, as mm -hmm. you, as you make any kind of effort, I mean, you know, uh, will 400 people watch a podcast? Will 1100, will 63, doesn't really matter if your podcast is better. You work harder. You improve all the time. It gets better. You um, you get healthier, more focused. You you get better at finding people. Uh, whatever it is, it'll it'll grow, and you know it'll grow. Yeah. You just know that it will because you're putting in the effort. And when you decide not to put in the effort and put it somewhere else, because you meet a really beautiful woman, or you know you find a, a job that you really like, and you put the effort there, then you know your podcast won't grow. Um, and your life becomes quite simple. It becomes an act of where am I going to put effort to improve? And, and if I put effort there and I'm super patient, uh, it'll get better. And uh, then you don't hate the Ronda Rousey's and the Conor McGregor's <laughs> of the world. You, you admire them and you strive to, to, to achieve. I mean, um, my sort of uh, little highlight and what helped me uh, kind of try and get better and invest more into my podcast was uh, Joe Rogan obviously retweeted one of my episodes. Cool. With um, Mick West and some other guy, they were talking about 9/11 and the conspiracy and debunking it and everything. And he retweeted it, and I was like, "Oh shit! Right, okay, that's cool. Like, brilliant. It got me yeah. a fair few views." And I was like, "I need to yeah. up my game now because yeah. I'm big time. Get that traffic." Fuck, Joe man. Rogan's the fucking man. Like, I can't even believe you're telling me this right now. Like, uh. I can't fuck like I don't even understand how this guy has the time to be as sort of generous and encouraging as he does. It just doesn't make sense. He's got a family. He's a fucking touring comedian. 
He commentates the UFC and he puts up like eight podcasts a week or some crazy shit like that. I have no idea how he has time to uh, to do that. But part of the reason I said, yeah, let's do your podcast is because Joe and I do that often as one. Who knows? I get to make a new friend. That's wicked. Yeah. Uh, two, it's Friday at the end of my day. I'd like, you know, I don't. I'm going for dinner with friends in 45 minutes. This is a break. I get to make a friend and chat. And, you know, this is. And three is Joe has been so generous to me. It is incumbent on me to be generous with others. Like it's responsibility. That guy's the fucking best. It's unreal. Like what he. How much he fucking like. It's strange how like he encourages people and, you know. It's, but it's beautiful. It really is. It should teach us all to be that way. But, you know, it's, again, you can look at Joe and see the world is unfair. Joe's rich and successful and gets to do cool shit. Or you can look at Joe and go, holy fuck, that guy was like poor, working his ass off trying to accomplish something. And yes, it seems impossible where he is, but it seemed impossible where he is to Joe too. When he started, it was tiny, 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 tiny steps, tens of thousands of tiny steps in improvement. And once you start on that journey, life fucking gets better all the time. But that dude is the fucking man. It's crazy. That guy like was texting me from it, like on vacation to like, you know, try to help when I had my Instagram page taken down the other day. Like that, that fucking, that's unreal. I can't, it doesn't surprise me that he, that your turning one of your encouraging moments was Joe Rogan, but at the same time, it kind of does <laughs> because I like I don't even know how he can be like do that much like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember viewing because um, obviously he was my inspiration to start a podcast. I was like, "Fuck it, I'm yeah. gonna try," as I'm sure it was for many yeah. others. I remember many first podcast. He had this shitty camera with one of his friends sitting in front of some shady computer and had like a, a snow effect going over the top of it amazing fucking amazing i haven't seen the the number one but i can just imagine it. like a, a weak psychedelic kind of <laughs> yeah fuck, that's hilarious it was funny honestly so so let me let me tell um uh throw this in here when you called me earlier today your your my your headset wasn't working yeah right and uh you couldn't hear and uh right away i was like fuck i've been there like I've been there. That's why I was like, don't panic. Don't freak out. Like, it, like, you know, if anything, that the truth of these things are, is very humanizing. And it reminds everybody, nobody that you see doing anything just was born doing that thing. They all did it. It was hard. It was weird. It was setbacks. It was challenges. You know, they had moments of fucking panic where they couldn't believe like what was happening. Um, I was one of my very first pieces that I was doing was me and Vanderlei Silva. And there was some pro and he was there and I hadn't met him and I didn't know. And they had a problem with the camera and I was going to play Yahtzee with him. It ended up being fine, but I was freaking out. And my, my reaction at that time, again, where I'm a different person every fucking, I hope to be a different person tomorrow than I am today. And, and by doing that over time, you change a lot. Uh, hopefully for the better. I mean, you're going to change one way or the other. If you're making an effort, it'll be for the better. If you're not, it probably won't. But uh, but at the time, I was feeling rage. Like, how the fuck is, like, what's happening? Why is everything, holy shit. Like, and I didn't fortunately show it, and we ended up doing the piece, and it was fine. But as soon as you were like, holy shit, my headphones aren't working, yeah, it snapped me back to that. And 
like Joe Rogan's the best in the world at something. When I'll guarantee you, when he sees a young comedian start to like stiffen and not do well, he had to go through that. There's no way you can be as good as this good unless you do it. And it's such if people just understood that. Uh, they wouldn't be afraid that like, oh my God, I'm going to fail. My headphones don't work or I'll stiffen on stage or fucking the camera's fucked with, with Vanderlei. It becomes normal. It becomes this thing that you're so thankful for after that you had it and you survived it and you, it improved you. Um, and again, this is another mindset thing. The idea that like, you know, setbacks or failures or like, you know, curveballs they're scary and they're painful and they're weird, but they're gifts. Like you're going to have them. Yeah. So if you're going to have one in a good situation that you can get through it, then you're very thankful to have it. Like, you know, um, in my, I work in TV still uh, in Canada and a fair bit in, in different places. And I'm experienced now. And experience just doesn't mean that I know the words to say about fighting. Experience means if a light goes off or my mic falls or something falls from the thing or the, or the host faints or whatever, I'm going to be more comfortable doing that. That's the real experience. Or like, you know, your, your interview guest doesn't show up or you can't hear the thing. Like that is what it is to get good at something is to have shit happen. Yeah. Like, to be good at it is just to have had enough shit happen that now you can handle the shit that happens. Like that is what it is to, to improve at something. Um, and, uh, you know, now I make my primary thing and it's not the thing that pays me. I give it away for free, but it, it is a, my primary thing for many reasons is I make one minute breakdowns. They've been viewed three or 400 million times. And again, fucking Joe Rogan has a, a lot to do with that. When he retweets one, it'll be seen a half a million times, right? Um, but, um, but doing 900 or 1,000 of those, the act of doing them just makes you better. Your flow is better. Your understanding is better. Your comfort is better. There is no substitute. And if you want to get good at anything, all you do is do it a lot. Don't care about the numbers. Don't care about the results. Don't care about the audience. Uh, you know, care about the audience, but don't care about their hatred <laughs> or their or their disdain or you know, people who are not doing podcasts telling you what you should do different. I mean, some feedback is valuable and uh, and definitely care about the people. But for the most part, if you do ninety podcasts this year, many things will happen. You'll get way the fuck better at everything. Like, and, and you're good. You're good at this already, but you'll get better and you can always get better. Um, and you'll get better at, at getting people. You'll get more comfortable after you do 80 and you've had really, you know, 27 large guests and you've had fucking John Jones, you get a big one here and a, you know, seven small ones and then a huge one and then 27 that nobody watches. You'll get better at all the skills and uh, you'll develop an audience, you know? There's no reason to not like, and people say, how should I get into like MMA, you know, journalism, or how should I get into podcasting? The only answer that makes any sense is start immediately. Don't do any more planning unless you're filming that planning, like start immediately. And if that, your first podcast is check one, two, oh fuck, I don't know how to do this podcast. Wait a second. Is anyone listening? Oh man, I'm live. Uh, here's my new camera. Somebody will be like, you know, it's really fucking crazy. I watched this guy try to do a podcast. 
And 39 later, you'll be able to look back and not only will you laugh at that and be able to gauge your improvement, but you'll be proud of it. You'll be deeply proud of it. You'll be deeply fucking proud of it. Um, and no matter what I get to do over the next couple of years, it'll all be rooted in the fact that when I got up the next day, I made another breakdown. And later that day, I made another one. And then later I made another one. And the next day I made four. And after four months, I had made 113. And then I looked back after 350 and I was like, well, some of them are pretty good, but a lot of them are not that good. And then at 600, I was like, I think I'm a little better. And I'm, my mic is better. And I learned, like, you got to do fucking thousands of anything. But if you do, you might, you will get better. You, it, it's, you will get, you know, um, in Thailand, the Thais will fight like 30 times a year, some of them, uh, and they'll train twice a day. And none of it, their heart rates don't go up when they do it later. It's not so, when you fight three times a year, you're like, holy fuck, it's fight week. And like, you know, now everybody's around. What if I, like, it's all so stressful. If you fight, fight three times, so let's say you fought three times this month. And I fought three times, I'm going to fight three times this, this year. By month three, you fought nine times and I fought one. By month six, you fought 18 times as I go to do my second. Like there's no fucking comparison to your comfort level and your skill level and your what you do. It's like everything is done through the doing of the thing. Mm. <laughs> you know, there's so few mysteries to a lot of this. It's just, but we make the, a lot of what it is, is we're scared. Like, and what, a lot of what we're scared about is some assholes will say we suck. Once you remove that, they don't, you know, the saddest thing is to be a spectator at life. And, and a lot of things are going that way. You know, one time we, we would sit in an arena and we'd watch football or, you know, fighting or whatever. But now, and then we'd have an opinion. Oh, my God, the quarterback was good or he wasn't or this thing happened or next time we're going to go get him. But as we started to shoot everything, people now do that with politics you know president sucks or the president's awesome or those guys are stupid or whatever and then they start doing it with twitter it's like you know brandon shops show isn't very good and like you know our brandon shops the greatest i fucking love that guy uh and then we do it with you know john jones's twitter like you know his instagram stories like you are now becoming spectators at life itself you're becoming the spectator of life that you we cannot do that like sorry you can do that, but I can't imagine this was what you were put on earth to do. I can't imagine this is really the purpose. The purpose is to do. So if the spectators of life are sitting around judging fucking Brendan Schaub's show. I bring up Brendan Schaub because I fucking love Brendan Schaub. I love, I love that guy's drive, and I love that guy's passion, and I love that guy's work ethic, and I love that he does it, and I love that he doesn't give a fuck, and I love that he does it again and again until he gets better, and then he applies the effort of a, of a professional athlete to becoming a comedian. People will, who have never done anything in their life will sit around and say, Brendan Schaub sucks at comedy. It's like that is being a spectator of life. Yeah. Brendan Schaub is doing comedy, leaving his house to pursue greatness in whatever field he can. And you are sitting there in the stands talking about whether or not his performance of the thing that he's living is good. It's, if, if, you, if anybody, if one person hears that and goes, 
holy fuck, am I just sitting, am I in the stands of other people's, um, you know, journeys, having opinions and judgments and, and hate, hatred or love or, or so, like, am I just in the stands? If one person thought that and said, I can't do that anymore, then I would be fucking thrilled because it, there's just, there's no way that's what we're supposed to be doing. There's no way we're supposed to be sitting in the stands, you know, uh, cheering or jeering or arguing over the performance of other people. There's just no way that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing here. Yeah. I think, you know? um, with also with that is you've got the people that will sit there and spectate and the beautiful thing is the person doing the performance is only going to get better because they're living that journey they're only going to grow yeah. they'll realize maybe yeah. i bombed a little bit there but we can improve yeah. that and we're going to get better that's right whereas the spectators right. sitting there going i'm going to go home and put my feet up and do fuck all and probably yeah. talk about how shit yeah. that was yep and you know what being a bit of a spectator is a part of life so Brendan was our example as he's going out and living his life. Sometimes he goes home and watches Netflix and he's a spectator of a Netflix show because mm. he's fucking earned that. <laughs> like he lived his life and he earned that. You know, some, uh, some people love that, their sports team and they work their, their, they're living their life and they're living their adventure and they're taking risks and they're growing and they're changing. And then they take a break and they watch their sports team. And if somebody is really truly living and pursuing their, you know, actualizing what they're capable of and what they like to do in their spare time is say the jb podcast sucks great <laughs> it's when all you're doing is sitting there in the stands while other people are doing they're doing the world and you go off to a job you hate to pay for shit you don't even want to sit around and criticize other people it's a it's sad it's sad we have to do something about it 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 is a reaction to a to a culture that's a bit fucked, you know. If you if you get trapped in a few things, you start watching the news, you get mad at the news. So, and while you're getting mad at the news, there's commercials for Doritos, and they're delicious, so you eat them, and and Coke, um, you know, and and candy, and and maybe even some kind of pill for restless leg syndrome because in America they're selling you pills too, uh, and you do all that. And then now you're lazy, and so you watch more news, and you get more mad. <laughs> like this is a trap, and uh, it can be broken out of. Most of these, the way that you go from that to you're not going to go to Ronda Rousey overnight or whoever you know, whatever it is you 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 can look up to. But what you do is you slowly start to get a little exercise, and then you slowly start to turn the TV off and fight the addiction of of the outrage. Yeah, of getting mad at the TV and then you improve your diet slightly and then you've made so much change that you feel amazing and you start to adventure through life but but uh, yeah, it's, it's a weird one I do feel bad for people I do now it's, I live in a, in a bit of a bubble because I'm surrounded I'm creating and I'm sending it to people who like it so I'm in a bit of a bubble uh, I'm told that there are that there are um, small sort of cultures and and little sort of you know environments where like people spend a lot of time disliking my work but to me it would make no sense to spend any time there like I like what the fuck would i be doing there right um where you know i will max out my 12 hours a day sharing on my twitter and my instagram and my youtube and wherever else and you know yes i'm in a bubble but if in that bubble, 300 million people watch what I make and enjoy it, why the fuck would I, you know, what do I want to go somewhere else where somebody dislikes it and, 
and have them change it. So the 300 people try to change it or like, you know, um, recommend I somehow change it so that the 300 million who enjoyed it don't like it. Like it makes no sense. Right. So we do end up stuck in a world where, you know, we're around other like-minded people. Um, but if those like-minded people are very positive and the world around you is positive, it's great. If the like-minded people are very negative and most of the shit you're talking about is angry and upset and, and, you know, um, outraged, then it's a tough place to live. And, and if the people around you are negative and the culture you're hanging out in is negative and, and, and stuff, then, you know, it's kind of, it's not your fault that you ended up there, but it is up to you to find your way out of it. It is up to you to find your way out of it because fuck, the world's a good place, you know? Mm. Um, one more question for you. Cause I know you've got a, got a rush off. Um, what, how, how did you and, uh, Joe Rogan become friends? Like what was the journey there? So this is fucking crazy to even tell you, but, uh, I can't even like, it even sounds stupid to say, but Joe Rogan reached out to me. He followed me on, on Twitter. So maybe two, for sure. Six years ago, maybe longer. He followed me on Twitter and I was like, holy fuck, Joe Rogan followed me on Twitter. That's crazy. He knows who I am because I, you know, I loved his work and, and he was as, you know, as brilliant as a commentator. And I, you know, I'm like, I looked up to the guy in many ways before I'd ever met him. He followed me. I, I, for sure, I followed him already, uh, but he followed me. And then uh, he, you know, liked to retweeted a couple of breakdowns I did. Probably, I've been doing these sort of breakdowns like I do now since maybe 2012 or 13. So that's six, seven years. So I better be good at them by now. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, work, I work hard and like to, you know, and it's not just what do you know and what are you saying? The comfort of trying to find ways to express this in a, in a meaningful way that's meaningful to me and anyone who watch it, that's, that's not as natural as it might sound because I could be too excited or, you know, it's just very common with me. <laughs> I'm too, too, too passionate. Um, but so anyways, like 2013 or 2014, I get a DM like days later and he's, and he's just like, this guy's awesome. I love your breakdowns. And I'm like, and I, I think I could be wrong, but I think he said, I'm a fan of your work. And I remember looking going, no, Joe Rogan's a fan of my work. <laughs> like it was either that or some other word where like I literally was looking at it going, that guy fucking likes my work. And then we chatted, and it was a think about Mamed Khaledov, who is uh, one of the great fighters, really, of the last 10 years from Poland, a Chechen fighter from Poland, uh, and genius. Like, the way he was performing at the time in KSW was brilliant. And I did a breakdown or two, and he started talking about him. And somewhere in there, he was like, hey, man, next time you're in L.A., you should come on my podcast. I, I'm guessing this is 2014. 2013 or 2014. And I'm like, yeah, it might be. And, you know, like I had, a, there, was, there was two or three things that like were related to work that I could do in LA. And so it was like, yeah, you know, there, if you work, if you're fortunate enough to be progressing in your field and it's your field is in entertainment, there's going to be reasons to go to New York, LA and in fighting to Vegas. So I was like, yeah, you know, I've been planning to go. Maybe I can. And so I contacted a person I was going there to do something with. And I was like, yeah, you know, the 15th. So I sent him a thing and I was like, yeah, you know, I could be there on the 15th or the 18th. And I, and my, I'm out with my family 
and um, or my wife's family. She was away at the time, but they're my family too. And you know, I'm looking on my phone, and my little Twitter thing comes up, and I click on it, and it's like, "Yeah, bro, let's do it." And it was on my fucking birthday. Mm-hmm. Joe Rogan was like, "Come on my birthday." He was like, "Come, I love your work. Come on my podcast." We became friends, which is insane to say. But as somebody who like really admired the man, we became friends because he liked my shit, which is wild. Then he, and no, you don't become friends just because somebody likes your shit. He invited me to be on his podcast. We hung out. He, <laughs> at, at that time, I think he found me uh, uh, funny. I think he found me to be an odd character. And I'm, maybe I'm an odd character. Some, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm every, to me, everybody's odd, but he seemed to find me amusing. And, uh, I didn't know what Uber was at the time. He sent me in an Uber back to, to downtown LA because I couldn't figure, I didn't even know how to work my phone. I'd never mind edit fucking videos. I still worked at a TV channel. He sent me back downtown and maybe, and he said, here, take my cell phone number. And I was like, no way. I got fucking Joe Rogan's cell phone number. <laughs> this is like five, five years ago. And there was something happening at work. And I literally just reached out and I asked him, I was like, hey man, I, can I ask you for some advice? And then at that time, he said, send me some of your stuff. I sent it to him. And he sent me back a text. Like maybe 40 minutes later, he said, I sent it to Dana. He's freaking out. He asked for your phone number. So I gave it to him. And then on the Monday after that, somebody from the UFC called me and said, let's meet. We want to bring you on to our company. I went, I went to Vegas. I met with Dana and other executives at the time. And they said, um, we uh, we're moving you and your wife to LA. You're going to be on um, on U, uh, UFC tonight every single week, and you're going to be on our pre and post shows doing your breakdown. Welcome aboard. Introduce them to to our partners. And uh, they said you'll have a contract uh, in three days, and uh, that was four and a half years ago. <laughs> and uh, co- yeah, companies work weird ways. You know, there's in and out of different things, and things go up and down. And you know, at that. It was like three days and, and about eight days later, there was like, yeah, so any, you know, to be, to be, uh, we were going to do a deal with you and Fox and in the week since the vice president of Fox, who's crazy about your work, uh, he's getting moved out of that position. So we've just got to wait on this for a while. And that wait on this for a while turned into a bunch of different work for them, which later turned into their company got sold to Endeavor. And from that day forward, it's, you know, I don't, I'm not super connected to uh to their company uh which is very strange but you know over time what you realize is like and i am certainly not one of these people who's like everything happens for a reason i just i'm just not but you learn and gain things from every point and there is no way that if i was in that system four or five years ago that i would have grown and changed and learned and explored and and found joy in the things that I do. I would be very much more to the middle. Uh, and maybe I would be happy there too. I wouldn't know the difference. But instead, I'm sort of on the, I'm on the fringes experimenting and trying to innovate and trying to shatter paradigms as best I can. And it's not always good and it won't always be appreciated by everybody, but I'm fucking thrilled to, to do it. So it ended up working out better than, than it ever prob- probably could. Um, and who knows, fucking, you know, we could speak in four months and I'm working for fucking one championship in Singapore or working for the UFC or, you know, started two different, like now to me, the non-structure 
of being inside a, a company like that is so appealing. But at the same time, I wouldn't rule anything out. But anyways, the long and the short of it was Joe was a fucking generous guy who liked my work, who helped me. And over time, we just became friends. He invited me to dinner with a bunch of his friends once. Um, Joey Diaz, fucking Jim Norton, and and the world's uh, Cameron, the world's most famous bow hunter, and all these people. And then we've got together a few other times, and we're in touch all the time. And he just fucking told sixty thousand people to follow my Instagram <laughs> last week. Like he's a fucking meeting meeting that man, or you know, having that man decide that he was a fan of my work, and then later being becoming a generous friend and mentor. It, like the dude has changed my life, honestly, you know, he really has. And uh, I certainly will never take it for granted. I will always be grateful. If, I'm not saying if I have a, a boy that I'll name him Joe, Joe, but I might if I had a girl, like Joe would be a good name for a girl, but I don't know. Now he's a fucking, he, he is one of the great human beings in the world. And that is the truth. And you know that. Yeah, you know I've that experienced a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, thank you for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate the conversation we had. Um, and hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. Yep. Um, is there yep. anything you'd like um, to add? Mid to late September. Uh, get a hold of me late August or early September. Let's do it again mid to late September. Um, no, you know what? I, like I've, you know, I've enjoyed just hanging out and chatting with you. I really have, you know, cool, you, yeah. And, and, and you didn't ask for my feedback, but I, I, I feel like it, it would be thoughtful to offer it, but you uh, you are very, very, very comfortable and encouraging to just sort of let people speak or ask them to speak or encourage them to speak. And that's rare. Um, I do it in a and it's not it's not good. It's not something it's something I need to improve on. Uh, and many other people do it. We want to get in our question or we want to get in our thing or we want to like show, you know, put a thought into there. I'm bad for that. A lot of people are. And uh, you're, you're very natural that way. It's uh, it is a gift. Don't, don't take that and go too far that direction either. Yeah. And just <laughs> never say a word, but it, it, what it, what it does is it's, it's encouraging. It's generous and it's thoughtful. And uh, it is sort of without ego and, and, um, yeah, it's not it's not natural for most people. So so definitely that's that's something that I noticed from from hanging out with you. It's not normal to just sit there and babble a lot, but when somebody is relaxed and comfortable and they make you feel comfortable, you can do it, you know? So, but thank you. I really enjoyed it. I do hope people uh, uh, check out my new Instagram is at Robin Black Martial Arts. Um, my other one was taken down. I, I shared um, Jorge Masvidal's flying knee taken from a fan cell phone, but I guess you know i assumed that was okay but it probably belongs to the ufc in some way even though a fan took it they took it in their building so who knows so i didn't mean to like you know undermine them but i think i did so i i guess i don't know if a bot took me down or or they did i don't know but i have a new one and again generous fucking joe rogan is trying to like get them to withdraw the strike and get my other one back if they do this is my thought if they do um I'm going to turn this one, Robin Black Martial Arts, into kind of more of a community. I'll definitely put right in there. Joe Rogan brought a lot of us together. I'm going to <laughs> put that right in the thing. So my other one's at Robin Black MMA, but the new one is at Robin Black Martial Arts. But uh, thanks, man. Thank you yeah. for making me feel so comfortable. And and uh, and let's do this again late September. 
Cheers for the uh, the kind words, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah, um, you're, very, you're very welcome. I'll send you a message uh, through Skype on this, just to keep in contact uh, with the link of the video and stuff like that. Um, and good. just to get a few words off you. But yeah, it'll only be through message. But yeah, really appreciate it, man. Thank yeah. you for your time. No problem. You take Enjoy, care. Enjoy, man. Have a nice yeah, meal, man. Too. Thank you.